Crosspoint Church's weekly sermon audio from lead pastor Brad Evangelista. For more information about Crosspoint, visit InsideCrosspoint.com. Amen, that's beautiful, guys. Well, good morning. Good to see you. Uh, I know what I'm up against. I am well aware you are sleep-deprived and maybe a little grumpy. So let's go. Matthew chapter 7 is where we find ourselves today as we are finishing up our journey through the Sermon on the Mount. These past few months, we're coming to the end, and uh, we are going to hear these final words from Jesus that really serve as a summary for this Sermon on the Mount. If you don't have a Bible, as always, I'd love for you to use one of the Bibles in the rack, chair, chair rack in front of you. You can take that Bible and keep it as your own. If you're not used to looking up verses in the Bible, as always, the page numbers are there. Uh, two different page numbers because there's two different printings of the same version of the Bible. But again, you're, you're welcome to keep that Bible. Uh, I think it'd be helpful for you to actually have it open and read along. Uh, and, and just see the text for yourself. As you're finding that, let me mention uh, that this is a bit of a bittersweet Sunday. We are saying goodbye to a couple that has been part of our church for a long time, J.C. and Singling Xiu. Where are they? They usually sit back there. If you're there, raise, they're in the back. Raise your hand. There they are. And they are moving back to their home in Taiwan this week. Uh, J.C. has worked for many years at Aflac and has retired recently, and they are going back home to uh, be a witness to their family and, and, um, and spend their retirement being a light for Christ in their native land. And uh, although we rejoice in that, we will s- deeply miss them. Uh, Singling has been like a mother to uh, many young ladies in this church, and we are so grateful for your, uh, just your, your kindness, your hospitality, the sweet presence of Christ that um, is on you. And don't leave here today without giving me another hug. Um, and let me pray with you guys. I love you, and I will miss you dearly. And gosh, it's going to be expensive for you guys to fly back from Taiwan uh, three or four times a year to visit us. But <laughs> Affleck has a good retirement, I hope. <laughs> Uh, Well, this morning, as I mentioned, Jesus' words at the end of the Sermon on the Mount serve as as a kind of summary for the whole sermon. Now, we've been working through this uh, really well-known but often misunderstood sermon from Jesus in Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7. Uh, By the way, if you're wondering, we're we're probably going to do a standalone sermon next Sunday, then we have Easter, and then we'll get into another book after Easter. But this morning... Um, what I want to do is I want to read the text and then pray, and then, um, then we'll, we'll kind of orient ourselves as to where we are to remind ourselves what's going on uh, with the Sermon on the Mount, and then work back through. And in this text, Jesus is contrasting a wise builder and a foolish builder. And I think that the main point, in fact, we'll just put it up on the screen, I think that the main point that Jesus is making today in this text and really through the whole sermon is that a true follower of Jesus hears his words and obeys them. It's not super complicated. I think that's very clear. But living that out is, of course, the great call of our lives. So let me read Matthew chapter 7, starting in verse 24 through the end of the chapter, and then we'll pray. Jesus says, 
Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall, because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell. And the floods came, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell, and great was the fall of it. And when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. Well, let's pray and ask the Lord to help us think about these words. Uh, Father, we are so grateful that you woke us up this morning You have given us life and breath, and it's in you that we live and move and have our being, Paul says in Acts. And this room is full of people that are trusting in Christ, and certainly there are some in here that are not yet believing in your Son. Father, I pray by your sovereign grace, as we pray every Sunday, that you would open the eyes of any unbelieving hearts in here, that you'd give them You'd give them the very thing that you require of them that they cannot bring in and of themselves, which is faith and repentance. That you'd give them those gifts so that they can see Jesus and hear him and obey him and follow him. And for believers in this room, I pray that you'd encourage us and stir us and convict us and and move us deeper into what it means to be transformed into the image of Christ. Lord, I thank you for other gospel-preaching churches in our area, and we pray that you would bless them. I thank you for my friend David Hardwick at Gentian Baptist Church on Milgen Road, and I pray that you'd bless that congregation this morning as, as David opens up your word and ministers your truth to the people there. I thank you, Lord, for Calvary Baptist and my friend Jeff Struker, and pray for grace to them. Thank you for Westminster Presbyterian Church and Mitch McGinnis and the congregation there. Bless them, Lord. Thank you for St. Andrew's Presbyterian Church and Bill Douglas. And we pray for his preaching of the word today to the saints there. Lord, there are many other churches that believe in you and are preaching the gospel and serving you. And I pray for grace to all of them. And Lord, now as we turn our attention to your word, do your work among us. Blow the fresh wind of your Holy Spirit through this room today and do your work, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, what strikes me as we read this text is that in the very first line, Jesus says, everyone everyone who hears these words... And I think this serves as a summary, not just of uh, the the words right prior to this and the words that he's going to say, but really as a a summary of what Jesus is saying in the whole Sermon on the Mount. So it might do us well to to reorient ourselves to what Jesus' aim or mission or goal is in the Sermon on the Mount. So remember, in Matthew chapter 5, Jesus begins with this announcement of what it means to be a Christ follower. He talks about these heart issues. And what Jesus is doing in the Sermon on the Mount is he's not establishing a new way of following God. He's linking himself and his ministry and his mission 
to what has come before him in the Old Testament. So in the very beginning, God has created all things, and he created as a pinnacle of his creation mankind, Adam and Eve, and Adam and Eve fell and rebelled against God in the garden in Genesis 3, and because of their fall, because of their rebellion against a good and gracious God, they are they are excommunicated from God's presence. They're, they're kicked out of the garden. They're separated from God. And to be separated from life is to die, to die spiritually. And that's what happens to Adam and Eve. They are now, although they are physically alive still, by God's mercy and grace, they have spiritually died. And now everything that comes from Adam and Eve, all of their progeny, all of their children, that's us, every person, is born with that natural spiritual inability. The Bible calls it dead in our sins. We're dead in our sins. We're unable to do anything right to make ourselves right with God. And, but mankind continues to progress. And God does not leave people in that helpless position. He comes to them, and he comes to them very early, and he chooses one man, Abraham, to be a man through whom that he would build and make a new people out of nothing. Not because Abraham was good or more righteous than anybody else, but solely because of his grace, God comes and he calls a man, Abraham, and he says, I'm going to make a nation out of you. And through this nation, through this people, through this family, I am going to use your family which will become a nation, to bless all the peoples of the earth. And God does that. He calls Abraham, and he makes a nation through Abraham, and he gives this nation laws and a way of living, not because God is grumpy and legalistic and he wants them to just follow the rules, but because God is fashioning this family, this people, to be a people that are holy and set apart and distinct from the other nations of the earth, not so that they would be separate, but so that through the life and the holiness and the godliness and the joy of these people as they follow God, that that would be a display of the beauty of what it means to be God's people. And through the life of that family, now nation, God would draw other people to himself. That's God's plan. And that's what God is doing in the Old Testament. And he gives his Old Testament family, the nation of Israel, these laws by which they were to follow for their good, for their joy, for their holiness, so that God could work through them and fulfill the promise that he made to Abraham to bless all the world through this one man. Well, he, along the way, promises that ultimately these people are not going to be able to do this. They're not going to be able to follow the law like they can. And so very early on, God promises that he will send one, a seed, who is this offspring of a woman who will come and who will be the one who obeys where his people cannot obey. And he won't just be an example of obedience, but he will be a conquering king who defeats sin and death and who once and for all reconciles God's people to himself. He's this coming king. That's the message of the Old Testament. And this king comes, and we know 
now because we have the New Testament that this king is the son of God, the second person of the Trinity, Jesus. God become man. And when Jesus begins his ministry, he doesn't offer just moral teachings that will be helpful things to live by if we would consider them. But Jesus comes as a king, the king, God in the flesh, doing more than offering a new ethic on a way to live, but announcing and proclaiming the establishment of his kingdom, whereby he is going to defeat and to overthrow the kingdoms of this earth and to establish and to recapture and to renew and to restore what God had set out to do in the first place. Now, it's important for us to understand that all of this was intended by God in the first place, right? It's not like God created this world and then it fell outside of his control and now he's scrambling to kind of make up a plan to try and rescue it back. The Bible tells us in the New Testament in Ephesians that God planned for this redemption before the foundations of the earth. So that's a mystery. We can't quite figure that out. But we just have to read that truth and humble ourselves, close our mouths and say, wow, God is in utter control. And he is in utter control of all things in ways that we can't even piece together in our finite minds. Amen? Okay. Amen. Thank you very much. Somebody's awake. Thank you, Scotty. The point is, is that God has created a world for his glory He's allowed it to fall. He's allowed a dark kingdom to take over his creation for a time. And he has planned to send his son, the second person of the Trinity, the co-eternal, co-glorious son of God, to come and establish like an embassy in that dark kingdom called the church, whereby he would then cause a people to follow him and cause this kingdom, this kingdom of God that is established as a beachhead called the church in this dark kingdom to grow and to grow and to grow. And then eventually God promises that this king will come again and finally and fully reconcile and redeem and conquer and vanquish all of his enemies and make all things right. All of this... For the display of God's glorious, saving, powerful grace. By the way, that's the story of the Bible, just so you know, right there. Right? And so, to position what we've been working through in Matthew 5, 6, and 7, is Jesus' announcement, proclamation, command, establishment of what life should look like in that kingdom that he has established in part that is coming when he comes again and will be finally established in full when he comes again, right? So what, what's happening is Jesus is talking about what it means to be a subject of the kingdom, a subject of the king, life in the kingdom. And he is saying that because he's the king, when his followers hear his words, they will obey him. And to summarize it all, he contrasts the wise and foolish builder. So we're going to do that. We're going to contrast this wise and foolish builder that Jesus speaks about here at the end of the Sermon on the Mount. He says that there's a wise man who hears his words, obeys them, 
And he's like somebody who's built his house on the rock. Storms are going to come. Because this wise person obeys him, he endures. But there's a foolish man who hears Jesus' words, does not obey them, and he's like one who builds his house on sand that has no footing, has no strength, and his house is destroyed, and he does not endure. So Jesus is contrasting a wise and foolish builder. We're going to look first at the similarities between a wise and foolish builder. I think there are three of them. There are probably many more, but let me give you three similarities between these wise and foolish builders. The first similarity between these, and you can put it up on the screen, is that both of these builders, both of these men, the wise and the foolish, heard the words of Jesus. Both heard. Notice it says in verse 24, everyone then who hears these words will be like the wise man. But then verse 26, everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man. In this scenario, in this example, Jesus is speaking about two people that both hear the words of Jesus. One obeys, one disobeys. Now, this brings up a question that Jesus does not address here, but I think is a legitimate question for us to think about. It brings up the question about what of, what about people, what about those people out there? I think this is one of the great objections that many people have to the God of the Bible. And the question is, what about those people out there who have not heard the good news of the gospel? What about them? What happens to them, right? Well, I think the answer to that question, the, the spirit that sometimes people bring into the answer is, that, is how could God, if we read in the Bible where people, what Jesus I think is speaking about here is judgment, and people enduring that judgment, and people not enduring that judgment, I think he's speaking ultimately here about eternity, heaven, and hell, how could God send uh, a, a person who's never heard the good news about Jesus separate him from his presence forever if they've never heard. Friends, this is a humbling truth, but the reality of the scriptures is that there are no innocent, neutral people. We are all, by nature, rebels. And we have all rebelled against God. In fact, this is what the Bible says in Romans chapter 1, that God has shown himself in a general way to all people. Let me read Romans chapter 1, verse 18. These are wildly unpopular verses. Wildly unpopular. But they are in the Bible, and therefore are good. And they should cause us to be sober-minded and humble, and they should spur us on towards obedience. Listen to this, Romans 1. Verse 18, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. So that means that in our natural state, we are unrighteous, we are rebellious, and we by nature suppress the truth of God. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are, verse 20, without excuse. But does, let's just admit that we, in our natural mindset, don't like that, don't we? They're without excuse. 
Paul is saying that there are no innocent people. We are all by nature rebels. We are all by nature enemies of God, right? And, and as a result, we are without excuse. God has shown it to us. We have rebelled against him. Verse 21, for although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. The point is, is that, friends, let's, let's enter into this discussion with biblical humility that there are no neutral or innocent people. We have all rejected God. We are all by nature born as sinners. Ephesians 2, we are dead in our trespasses and sins. And by nature, objects of God's wrath. I realize it's not popular. Maybe you're visiting and you're like, man, I wanted to be encouraged. And this guy's just, he's messing with me. When is this thing getting over? Come on, give me, get me out of here. You know, happy time change Sunday. <laughs> I get that. But it's like the best way I can serve your soul is to orient you to the reality of what the Bible actually says. But Jesus here is not speaking about the guy in the island that has never heard the gospel. And by the way, for those people, that's why we need to fuel the spirit. The, the advance of missions. That's why we need to give money to Gavin and Kelsey LaBelle and the cars and other missionary couples from this church because we don't want to just be people that have a philosophical objection to God's utter sovereignty. We want to be people that are compelled by God's command to those that have heard and obeyed Jesus to go and take the gospel to those who can't. Do you understand? That, that haven't heard. Do you hear that? So let's be people that don't just object God's ability and power to do whatever he wants to do with his creation. Let's also read the rest of the Bible that says, how will they hear in Romans 10, he says, unless somebody goes to them, right? And so let's be a church full of people that are sending and going with the good news of the gospel. And let's do that until Jesus comes back or until we breathe our last breath. But I think what Jesus is speaking about here is people like us who grow up in the Bible Belt, who, have, who do hear the words of Christ. And my burden every week is that there are people that come into this room that have heard the words of Jesus. That, in fact, if you're in this room Sunday after Sunday, you're hearing the words of truth. You're hearing the truth of the gospel. And Jesus is saying that it is possible to hear the truth that leads to life and reject it. Don't be that person. Are you that person? The writer of Hebrews in Hebrews chapter 3, I won't take the time to read it, says, today if you hear my voice, do not harden your heart. And what causes our hearts to be hardened? Well, we prefer other things. We make up our own notions of what God is. Maybe we're preferring some secret sin over God. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. Both heard the words of Jesus. That's the first similarity. Two, second similarity is that both were building a house. You see, both were actively doing something. This makes me think that we are all building something. 
All of us are building something, some life, even if our building is by inactivity, right? We're all doing something, even if it's passiveness. Spiritual passiveness is active foolishness. And Jesus is saying here that everybody's building something. Either you're building it on obedience to Jesus and his word, or you're building it on yourself. And I just think about the fact that that what these two men were building was a house. A house implies a place where more than one person lives. And this makes me just think about men and the responsibility of men to be leaders in their home and in their spheres of influence and the impact that a man who is building foolishly a house, if he's building it foolishly, if he's building his life foolishly, if he's building his marriage and his parenting foolishly, the effect that that will have on other people when that foolishness hits the storm and is exposed and comes tumbling down. First year that we started the church, 11 years ago, we did this study uh, called Authentic Manhood, and some of it, quite frankly, was a little cheesy, But there were two things that stood out to me about two aspects of authentic manhood, and they were that an authentic man rejects passivity and accepts responsibility. And if you are a man in here that is building foolishly a house for yourself, for your own pursuits, for your own pleasure, then I would encourage you to stop. I would encourage you to reject passivity and stop your foolishness, and build your house on obeying Christ. A third similarity is that both of these builders, the wise and the foolish, both of them faced storms. Now what's in view here? Um, I think we can go one or two routes here. We can say that in one sense, what Jesus is saying here is that everybody faces trials, right? The righteous and the unrighteous. The rain falls on the just and the unjust, he says in the Gospels. And so trials are going to hit. It's going to come. Difficult times are going to come. We, we read that in a whole host of, of passages in the Bible. First Peter 4 talks about trials coming. It's going, it's going to happen. But I think that what Jesus is speaking about here is more than just the trials that are certain in life. In fact, let's just stop there. Uh, and, and just, just if, if that's what Jesus is saying there, then that should destroy this faulty notion that I think a lot of Americans live by, which is a kind of karma, that what governs the universe is karma. In other words, if something bad happens to me, it's because maybe I didn't obey God, or I didn't have my quiet time, or maybe I wasn't this or that, and so God is somehow punishing me. That, now God can do that, but that is not generally the way God works. Bad things happen all the time. People suffer trial and persecution and difficulty all the time. Everybody faces it, both the wise builder and the foolish builder. But actually, I don't think that's what Jesus has in mind here. I think what Jesus is getting at is something far more final than just the temporary storms of life. I think he's talking about final judgment. And why do I think he's talking about that? Because the context of Matthew chapter 7, he is setting this discussion about this wise and foolish builder in the context of this last part of chapter 7 where he's distinguishing between two ways to live. A person who is in Christ and is with Christ forever 
and a person who's outside of Christ and is cast away from his presence forever. So back a little further up in Matthew chapter 7, he talks about a tree and its fruit and a, a tree that bears good fruit endures and survives and a tree that bears bad fruit is cut off and thrown away and burned. And then right before our text this morning, last week we talked about where Jesus is, is saying to the person who does many good works in his name but never truly knew him, he says, depart from me, you worker of lawlessness. I think what Jesus has in view here when he talks about the storm coming is the storm of God's certain judgment that will come on every person. We'll talk a little bit more about that in just a moment. But that brings up a question that again is a, I think a, um, an objection that many people have to the true God of the Bible. And they think, well, how can God be loving and wrathful all at the same time? I mean, this God of judgment, it seems more like some ancient sort of archaic, you know, tribal God than really a sophisticated uh, version of God that we would have in our modern minds. But when we read the Bible closely, we realize that the Bible is full of God executing and promising His judgment on those who do not trust in His Son. Don Carson, who's a modern-day scholar and seminary professor, has written a very helpful book. It's short, but it's slow reading. It's called The Difficult Doctrine of the Love of God. And this is what Carson says about the, uh, the necessity of God's wrath and God's love together when we see them in the scriptures and how we can't pull out God's wrath from the Bible. This is what he says. Where God in his holiness confronts his image bearers in their rebellion, there must be wrath. Or God is not the jealous God he claims to be, and his holiness is impugned. The price of diluting God's wrath is diminishing God's holiness. Do you see how important that is? God, if he were to not judge rebellion and sin, would cease from being utterly, completely holy. Now, we can ask the question, why would God even allow a fall and sin in the first place that then he would necessarily have to judge to preserve his righteousness? We can ask that question, right? I think that's a legitimate question. And in fact, I think that is the most difficult question of all. Why would God allow sin and fall in the first place? And we get one little or two or three hints in the Bible as to why God has done that. I think he answers that question for us in Romans chapter 9 where he writes through Paul where he says, what if God desiring to display the glory of his mercy has determined to create a creation that would fall, that he will judge partially, and also to create a people for his mercy that he would pull them out of that fall and thereby in a greater way display his glorious grace by creating a creation that will fall, that he will save many from, and allowing the rest to be judged. Now that's probably the most humbling passage in the whole Bible, where God says, I've done this to display my utter mercy and grace and glory. And listen, 
we're all, to some degree, we all have to wrestle with that. But what's in view here is that God, by promising that the storm will come of his judgment, is maintaining his holiness, which is the most loving thing God can do. God's wrath is the other side of the sword of his holiness and love. And both of these wise and foolish builders faced the storm. But there were some differences, two differences. The first, differences between, the first difference between this wise and foolish builder is one, is that only the wise man obeyed Jesus' words. Only the wise man did, did this. Only the wise man heeded Jesus' words. Words. So what does it mean to obey Jesus' words? Well, the beginning of obedience is not just to set about doing what Jesus has said, but the beginning of obedience is to repent and believe. In fact, Jesus begins his ministry in Matthew chapter 4, and we see it recorded in Mark chapter 1 as well, that when Jesus comes on the scene, he says that the kingdom of God is at hand, right? So he's announcing the kingdom, repent and believe the good news. So the beginning of obedience is not us mustering up enough willpower to try and do what Jesus says so that we will have a more functional life, but the beginning of obedience is to repent, to turn from trusting in ourselves and put our hope and faith in what Jesus has done on the cross to bear the wrath of God that should have been ours, rise again in victory, give us his righteousness so that we then can obey him. So the wise man obeys Jesus' words. And he is, we'll see this in a second, he is saved, he is kept safe by not just his faith in Jesus, but his obedience to Jesus. So this brings up the, the clear, seeming, possible contradiction to what we said last week. So, so what did I say last week? I said that a person is falsely converted if they are trusting in their works done for Jesus rather than the work of Jesus, right? So we're not saved by works, right? I hope if there's nothing else that you've gotten here in these last 11 years that we've been in church, I hope that you've gotten that, right? Encourage me. I know it's time change Sunday and you're like, uh, but come on. We are not saved by our works. We are saved by Jesus's work, right? But the difference between the wise and foolish builder was works, obedience. So is the Bible contradicting itself? Just one paragraph before Jesus says to these people who did all these works in his name, depart from me, I never knew you. And now in this paragraph, he's contrasting the wise and foolish builder and the difference between the two, they both heard the words of Jesus, one obeyed and the other did not. Is Jesus now all of a sudden shifting on us and saying that, we are saved by our works and obedience. Well, no. But let's do a little bit more investigation. Let's go to James chapter 2 and mess ourselves up a little bit more, right? James chapter 2, verse 14, where James says this. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works, can that faith save him? 
If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to him, go in peace, be warm and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? Verse 17. So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. Okay, this is where I love it because um, this is where I get, I kind of like the needle, all the reformed Christians in the crew, right? And I'm one of them, right? But this is where we need to heed the Bible's full teaching, right? We champion the free grace of God. That we are saved not by anything we can do, but by what Jesus has done. Can I, can I get a north-south on that? Amen? All right? All right? We're, we're all tracking on that, okay? But now this verse in James says, now that faith isn't enough to save you. In fact, this epistle of James was so controversial in the early church that they didn't know whether to include it or not because they struggled with this very thing because they weren't seeing how these things fit together. And 1,500 years later, this German cat by the name of Martin Luther, you ever heard of him? Important cat in the history of church, in the figure in the history of church history. He was so upset with what he initially read in James that he wanted James taken out of the Bible. Can't do that, Mark. Can't do that, buddy. It's already codified. It's part of the canon. He said that James was an epistle of straw. It was so, the message of it, in other words, he was saying it would just fall apart. But he was wrongly seeing, listen to me, calling the great Protestant reformer wrong. That's right, I did it. March March 13th, 2016. Luther was wrong because he didn't quite see the connection between true saving faith and what must naturally flow out of true saving faith. You see, there's no contradiction here if we stare at it long enough. Jesus is saying that you are saved by my work alone, but a person who that has truly happened to will necessarily then walk in obedience. Do you see what he's saying here? He's saying that works are not what save us, they are what flow out of God's sovereign grace that saves us. Do you get that? This is how the reformers put it. He said that we are saved by faith alone. And by that, they're talking about faith in Christ. We are saved by faith alone. And even that faith is a gift of God. Ephesians 2 says, lest anyone should boast. So we are completely dependent on God to give us that faith. So the reformers said, we are saved by faith alone, but the faith that saves is not alone, meaning it's accompanied, if it's true, if it's real, if it's genuine, if it's truly from God, it is going to be accompanied by good works or obedience. Do you see this? Do you see this? So works is not what saves us, but works, faith, obedience is the fruit of the root of true sovereign grace. Okay, I found that encouraging. I don't know about you, but anyway, amen. But we need to say a whole bunch more about that, don't we? Right? Because because there are varying levels of obedience in the Christian life. Yes, Christians still sin. Yes, we will continue to disobey God. And so how, how can we determine whether or not we are truly trusting in Christ? Well, friends, this amplifies the necessity of the life of the local church. Obedience to Jesus is not an individual sport. 
So do you see this? Do you see the, do you see the nuance here? Do you see that Jesus is saying that it's possible to trust in your works and not truly be saved? And then he's saying that those who are truly saved, who are truly trusting in him, who are obeying him, will to some degree in ever-increasing measure produce the fruit of obedience, which is fighting sin, fighting self-absorption, fighting foolish, building your own life, and obey him in ever-increasing measure. But friends, who gives us perspective on whether or not we are actually doing that? The local church. That's why we need one another to do this. Who can determine this on their own? Let me read to you Colossians chapter 3. Listen to Paul's words about how we help one another do this. Verse 16. Oh, that this would be true of Crosspoint. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, with thankfulness in your heart to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Did you catch that in verse 16? Let the word dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another. Oh, that, that, that our life together would be marked by admonishment, where we are encouraging one another. And that takes grit, guts. It takes, it takes caring for one another more than we care about our, you know, how we're perceived. That's hard. Let me, let's go to 1 Thessalonians, another little verse on what life in the local church should look like. 1 Thessalonians chapter, um, chapter 5. I love this. Paul says this about life in the local church. Verse 12. We ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you and esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Be at peace among yourselves. And listen to verse 14, written to everybody. And we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. See that no one repays anyone evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. Did you hear that? He says that within the context of these people who are obeying Jesus, building their house on the rock, there will be people that are idle, faint-hearted, and weak. Do you see? Do you see? Jesus is not saying, he's not giving us this analogy of a wise and foolish builder and saying, uh, well, individually, when the music is playing at the end, Everybody just within their own hearts, bow their heads, close their eyes, and determine whether or not you are one of the wise people or the foolish people. If you're one of the wise people, good for you, Johnny and Susie. Run along to lunch now and be mean to a waitress. If you are a foolish builder, well, you need to repent, and you need to become a wise builder so that you can start obeying Jesus, so that you too can run off, run off into your private little life and go about obeying God. Who can determine this on their own? He puts us in the context of a kingdom which is a family 
which finds its expression in the local church, and we encourage one another because we can easily be self-deceived, because we can very easily be like the person that we read about last week who says, I- I've done all these things, and we trust in our works and not in the grace of God, and then we find ourselves on that day outside of God's grace, right? One more little verse, just one more. I'm on a hobby horse, I know it, but you are so good and long-suffering, and I've taught you to be that way because you have no other choice. Hebrews 10, uh, verse 19. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, in other words, because Jesus has bore God's wrath for us and rose again and opened up now a way for us to go back to the Father through faith in him, let us draw near, verse 22, with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water, verse 23. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promises faithful, verse 24 and 25, listen to this, and let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. In other words, let's spend time scheming and manipulating and thinking about and having deep thought and having conversations with each other about how we can encourage one another in the faith, right? Let us consider, let us take time, let us think about how we can stir up love and good works so that we will call out of one another the very things that are required from God for us. So the only, so the difference is that only the wise man obeyed Jesus' words. And secondly and finally, only the wise man was safe from the storms. And like I said earlier, I think that what Jesus is talking about in these storms is not just the trials of life, but I think ultimately he's talking about the sure and certain judgment that is coming. I mentioned earlier that judgment comes upon every person. And that may have caused a little radar for some of you to go up and say, wait a minute, I'm in Christ, I'm not going to be judged. Well, I think you're right in a sense, but Hebrews 9 tells us that it's appointed unto all people to die, and after that comes the judgment. We will all stand before God someday, and that, I believe, is what is personified in this storm, the the storm of God's righteous wrath that is bearing down on us. And the difference, there are only two types of people in the world. The difference between the believer and the unbeliever is that the believer will be covered by Jesus' righteousness and the storm of God's wrath will be completely and totally and fully absorbed. Whereas the unbeliever will face that storm, that wrath, that just wrath of God on their own. That, that's, that's the difference. Like we said before, there, the, the greatest difference between all, there's not, we have our own little secondary divisions, right? Black people, white people, Asian people, Latino people, Americans, whatever. There are only two types of people in this world, ultimately. Those that are in Christ and those that are outside of Christ. 
That's what Jesus is saying here. The wise man who by the faith that God has given him then necessarily obeys Jesus and is safe and those that are outside of Christ and bear that wrath of God on their own and great is the fall of a life that is lived like that. Jesus is the rock, the ark. He is the flood He is the chariot that safely passes us through the flood. He is the wrath-bearing, wrath-satisfying, punishment-extinguishing covering for the wise builder. And make no mistake, Jesus on the cross is not just laying down his life as an example of love. He is bearing the wrath of the Father. Listen to Isaiah chapter 53, just a few more verses. Isaiah 53 verse 4. Speaking prophetically, the prophet is now Isaiah of Jesus, the suffering servant on the cross. Surely, verse 4 of Isaiah 53, he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid... This is, this, listen to the sentence. And the Lord, meaning God the Father, has laid on him, meaning God the Son, the iniquity of us all. And then down in verse 10, yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief when his soul makes an offering for guilt. He shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. The prophet is saying that Jesus is being crushed by the Father for us. He is the rock that the waves of God's wrath crash against and keep us safe on that day. John the Baptist puts it this way in John chapter 3, verse 36. He says it succinctly. Whoever believes in the Son of God has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son of God shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. So just think about that word saved. What do we mean? It's like a word that is mocked by our culture that Christians use. But think about what that word means. What are we saved from? Are we saved from sin? Are we saved from the devil? Are we saved from ourselves and our self-destructive ways? Well, on some level, the answer is yes to all those. But it goes deeper. Biblically, we're actually saved from something deeper and much more dreadful than sin, the devil, or ourselves. Biblically, we are saved from God. By God. For God. Do you see that? That's what's happening in this analogy or this parable that Jesus is offering. 
We are saved from the right, just wrath of God the Father. We are saved by God the Son's work on the cross to bear that wrath for us. And we then are saved for God to not just hide in Him and believe Him, but then to obey Him so that through our lives we would be a display of that saving grace so that through us he would use our lives to be the means by which he calls other people to this saving rock. You see that? So if that is true, should we not be the happiest and the most winsome and earnest and sincere people on this earth. Because the greatest need of every human is not a 401k or who's going to be a president or this or that. The greatest need is the storm that is coming and those that have anchored themselves to the rock that only can protect should be the ones who are the loudest proclaimers of that safe haven, which alone is Christ. Oh, that we would be a wise builder, building our life on this great truth and giving our lives away to this great news. Let's pray. Before I pray, as we bow our heads, I want us just to take a moment before the before the time when we respond, and for those of us that are Christians, maybe if we feel so led to come and receive communion, or to pray, to repent, to sing along with the worship team, Let's take a moment just to pause in silence and to let the Spirit of God speak to us. There are only two types of people in this world. Those that are in Christ and have obeyed Him, trusting in Him and following Him. Certainly doesn't mean that you're perfect. Your life still may be a jumbled up mess of contradictions, but you are believing and trusting in Christ alone and you are struggling and striving to obey him. That's the, that's the wise builder. The other type of person is the foolish builder. Which one are you? Let's be silent for a few seconds and let the Spirit of God search our hearts. That very question, which one are you?
if you are in Christ, you were not just saved from him and by him, you were saved for him. So renew your affections and leave this room this morning in worship and joy and humility and earnestness to tell others about this great grace of God. If you are now aware that you are not in Christ, do not leave this room. You have heard these words. Do not harden your heart. The call on your life right now is to not reach down deep inside of you and think of things that might commend you to God. The call is not for you to consider how you are not as bad as some other person that you know that's a lot worse than you. No, your only hope is to look away from yourself and to Christ. And if you can do that, God is giving you the very thing that he requires of you now, which is a new heart and faith to hear these words. He's opening your previously deaf deaf ears so that you can hear. You now must respond. You must put your hope in Jesus and you must endeavor to follow him and a wonderful and very helpful way to begin that would be for you to confess this, to say that you are trusting in Jesus, to cry out to him, do that even now. Turn from yourself and put your hope in Jesus. The requirement for you to do that is not for you to understand every intricacy of what it means to be a Christian, not to understand all that even you're doing now, but it is to respond to what God is doing in your heart right now. Turn from yourself and put your hope in Jesus. Cry out to him and say, Jesus, I trust in you and not myself now. Forgive me for my sin. I want to follow you. And if that's you, before you leave this room today, find somebody that you know to be a Christian. Maybe come down front during the time of worship and find a pastor and pray with them. Those things won't make you a Christian, but they will be encouragements to you to help you be clear on what it means to trust in him. Do that before you leave this room today. Father, as we respond now, would you help us? to be wise builders that trust and obey and bring glory to your name. In Jesus' name, amen.